Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, an infectious disease expert explains why COVID vaccine booster shots are recommended now. Exploring whether a booster dose is necessary or not is really a very common element of vaccine development. An environmental epidemiologist discusses what public health officials learn about the spread of COVID-19 through wastewater surveillance. For every 10,000 people that contribute to that wastewater treatment plant, you can actually find virus if there's at least one case among those 10,000. And a psychologist and neuroscientist advises parents what to do if they think their child may have attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. All that and a visit from The Healing Muse, coming up after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, we'll learn about wastewater surveillance and how valuable it's been during the pandemic. Then we'll hear what parents can do if they think their child has ADHD. But first, an infectious disease expert explains why COVID vaccine booster shots are being recommended now. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. The rapid spread of the coronavirus Delta variant has accelerated talk about the need for vaccinated Americans to get a booster shot. I'll talk about what that means with Dr. Stephen Thomas. He's an infectious disease specialist who directs Upstate's Institute for Global Health and Translational Science, and he was the coordinating principal investigator for the Pfizer-BioNTech Global Vaccine Trial. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Thomas, and thank you for making time. Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Now, when the vaccines first rolled out, we heard how effective they were against COVID-19, at least in terms of preventing serious illness from the virus. Can you explain why booster shots are being recommended now? So, you know, there are two conversations that are that are going on right now, and I, th I think it's important to distinguish them. Um, one conversation is about booster doses, and the other conversation is about third doses. Uh, and uh, it, it sounds like they're the same thing, but they're actually not. So when we're when we're talking about third doses, we're talking about um, immunosuppressed populations. So people that have had solid organ transplants, people that have had uh, that have leukemia or lymphoma, or uh, they're receiving medications that suppress their uh, immune system, or people with other diseases that suppress their immune system uh, in that in that same way. And what we're saying is these folks do not have as robust an immune response to a two-dose vaccination series as people without those conditions. And so what has been uh, authorized uh, is actually a third dose. So your, your, your primary series is a three-dose series. And that's what uh, was just recently um, opened up to the population. Uh, so then the second conversation is about booster doses. And what that means is um, people who respond very well to that initial two-dose series, the question is, how quickly does their immune response wane or decline over time? And at what point will the decline of that immune response uh, all of a sudden mean that they're at increased risk um, uh, or, at, or once again at risk? for getting infected and having a clinically significant uh, outcome, like um, you know, sick enough to go to the doctor or be admitted to the hospital or, or potentially die. Those are, those are called booster doses, and they might be six months, eight months, 12 months, 18 months, you know, uh, whatever. So, so, that, so it's important, I think, for your listeners to know that there's two different conversations and they're actually, uh, they're actually separate. And, and well, let me let me ask you if I can. You call it a third dose. Now, what if an immunocompromised person got the Johnson and Johnson shot, which was supposed to be just you know one shot? Would they are they being told that they may need a second Johnson and Johnson dose? Yeah. So uh, I, I I use the the two doses and three three doses uh, intentionally because uh, 
there currently is not a recommendation um, as it relates to the, the one dose Johnson and Johnson vaccine uh, because the data does not exist to, uh, or it has not been made um, uh, known uh, to allow that decision, you know, that deliberation and decision to occur. So that's why I'm that's why I'm referring specifically to the messenger uh, messenger RNA vaccines. I mean, there have been there have been studies uh, looking at uh, uh, boosting AstraZeneca, which is a two dose uh, vaccine. There have been studies looking at um, mixing and matching something we call heterologous prime boost uh, studies, uh, but those those have been primarily done uh, outside of the outside of the United States, and obviously AstraZeneca is not available. In the US, so, so really right now, the, the, the 3rd dose and booster dose conversations are with uh, the messenger RNA vaccines. So, those are, I'm glad you described the differences between the 2, um, so we don't get them too mixed up, but I do have some questions. The Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines are, are different than the 1 made by Johnson and Johnson. They're mRNA vaccines, which, if I understand correctly means that they instruct the cells in our bodies to build immunity to the virus. So what I'm confused about is why would those cells forget how to build immunity and, and why would I need a booster of one of those mRNA vaccines? So the, the idea of, of booster doses is not a new idea. There are lots of, there are vaccines that are currently in uh, the U.S. immunization schedule, which require which require booster doses, uh, and that actually is not necessarily a function of the vaccine or the vaccine technology, because in nature we have lots of diseases that we can be reinfected with. Right, there are some diseases that give you long-term protection, and there are some diseases that the protection um, wanes over time. True. Right? True. So it it is kind of. Um, Mimicking, uh, mimicking the way nature sometimes, uh, you know, sometimes works, um, and and deciding whether, uh, um, exploring whether a booster dose is necessary or not, is really a very common element of vaccine development. Um, these, you know, the question of will we need uh, a booster dose or not is is always discussed in uh, in the context of vaccine development and studies. Uh, studies are always kind of put into the uh, into the master plan to uh, to make that uh, to make that assessment. So you are correct. Messenger RNA, uh, which we have in our bodies all the time, uh, is instructing our cells to make the spike protein from SARS-CoV-2. And then once that spike protein is made, the body's normal immune response to that foreign spike protein. Uh, then occurs, and this is when antibodies and T cells and other parts of our immune system then start to do uh, uh, what what they inherently, you know, what they inherently do. Um, but again, it's not always it's not always lifelong, and and sometimes you do need uh, sometimes you do need a boost to uh, to make sure that your immunity stays above a level that will protect you. Can you talk about what scientists in Israel have learned about the vaccines that concerns scientists in the United States? Sure, uh, you know they um, they were very early adopters of vaccines. Uh, they used uh, messenger RNA vaccines, and they vaccinated a huge percent of their population. Almost eighty percent of their population was uh, was vaccinated. And the healthcare system over there has allowed them to uh, uh, collect a lot of data uh, over over time uh, from the beginning of this thing until uh, until today. And so, what has been happening um, and what they have been reporting is that over time they are seeing vaccine breakthroughs. Uh, and what what that means is that people who have previously been uh, fully vaccinated. Are now getting infected, and what um, the you know what the, the press has kind of latched onto are the uh, are kind of the top line, very scary, <laughs> uh, very scary headlines, which you know Pfizer vaccine efficacy going from ninety five percent to thirty percent. But if you dig into the data and you dig into the details, um, it's a little bit of a different story, and so. 
um, a vaccine breakthrough, and I really don't, I don't like the term necessarily because I, I, I think it has implications that are not uh, intuitive to people that are not necessarily in the business, but um, they look at all infections. So um, has the vaccine uh, been able to prevent people from getting infected, uh, whether they get sick or not? And that is, that is really not what vaccines are designed to do. It's a very high bar. Most vaccines do not prevent infection. So it is not surprising that over time, the ability of a vaccine to prevent infection uh, is down to 30, 40%. Well, if you then look at the next category that they looked at, they looked at, oh, well, what about infections that make people mildly sick? Well, the vaccine is still about 45, 44% at preventing people from getting mildly ill, which by the way, that's what seasonal flu vaccines, uh, that's what their efficacy is. It's about 45%, the seasonal flu vaccines that we get every year. But if you dig into the data and you say, well, how good is this vaccine today, six, eight, nine months later at protecting people from what I think are the the, pub, the, the clinical outcomes that represent the public health burden of COVID, which is severe disease, hospitalization, and death, they're still operating at about 85% and greater efficacy. So if you just look at the headline, which is all-inclusive, it's a really dire story. But if you look at the details in the data, uh, it shows that these vaccine, uh, you know, that, that in this case, they were looking at Pfizer, but um, there are other studies in other countries where the data is all very similar. Even six months, eight months out, these vaccines are preventing the severe outcomes with 80% plus uh, efficacy. Now, with your experience as an infectious disease doctor, how frequently are you seeing someone who's fully vaccinated but becomes seriously ill or hospitalized with COVID? You know, we used to not really see it at all, but yes, uh, we we are seeing people who get admitted to the hospital that have been fully vaccinated, um, but they are the minority. So, you know, we are still seeing, so the people who are dying from COVID in the United States, uh, you know, 95 plus percent of them are unvaccinated. The people who are getting admitted to the hospital for COVID who are um, fully vaccinated also, 90 plus percent unvaccinated. The people who are vaccinated and getting admitted to the hospital or the people who are vaccinated uh, and dying of COVID, uh, these are the high risk, mostly the high risk people. The vast majority are uh, they're, they're older folks, they're seniors, you know, more than 65 years of age. They have other uh, medical problems. Some of them have uh, are immunosuppressed. It's the population of people that one, you would uh, uh, expect them to not have as robust an immune response to immunization in the first place. And number two, if they did get infected, they had a, a low reserve to be able to tolerate um, the, the infection. Uh, it is still obviously uh, in, incredibly uh, tragic that, that it occurs, um, but I, I still think that it speaks to uh, the fact that these these vaccines are uh, still, all of them are still doing what uh, what they were intended to do. Well, I imagine most vaccinated people at this point wouldn't think if they, if they woke up with sniffles and a headache, they, their first thought wouldn't be, oh my God, I've got COVID because they're vaccinated. So when does someone who has been vaccinated need to get tested for COVID? Yeah, I think in this day and age of, uh, Delta, um, number one. Uh, number two, at a time when um, much of the United States is on fire with COVID and hospitals are full and pediatric intensive care units are full and cases are uh, way, way up, you know, higher than they've ever been uh, and deaths are, are creeping up. Um, you know, even our own county saw a huge percent increase in the positive test rate uh, just yesterday. I think that uh, you need to, in terms of whether you seek out testing or not, uh, you need to seek out testing thinking as if you were not vaccinated. So any, any you, you should not let the fact that you've been vaccinated um, be used to write off any symptoms you're having that could potentially be due to COVID because uh, the odds are it's, it's not going to be a major problem 
for you unless you're, you know, a, a very small percentage and, and those people who are highly immunosuppressed. But, but number two, one of the reasons we get tested is not just to confirm, oh, yes, I, I have COVID, but, but so that you can be isolated and that close contacts can be tested. And, and then those people can be quarantined so that we do not uh, continue uh, this cycle of uh, infected people infecting others, whether they're vaccinated or not, right? The, the, the vaccine is going to do a great job at protecting a bad outcome. It's probably going to do a pretty good job at reducing your infectivity, but it's not 100% and you don't want to get someone else uh, infected or sick. Upstate's HealthLink on Air will be back with more about COVID vaccinations after this short break. back to HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Stephen Thomas, the Director of Upstate's Institute for Global Health and Translational Science. You were talking about the difference between a third dose, which is, I think that's being recommended now for people with compromised immune systems to go ahead and get a third shot now, right? Correct. And then the difference between that and the boosters. Um, now, so let me ask you about the booster. Is, is that going to be a third shot of the same vaccine, or are the vaccine makers creating something special for a booster for the general population? Yeah, so the booster conversation now um, really is about getting a, uh, a um, an additional dose of the original vaccine. Okay. Made with the original strain. Uh, the caveat to that is all of the vaccine manufacturers are looking at making uh, uh, vaccines that are specifically tailored to the different uh, the different variants that are that are circulating in, in case uh, you know in case that they are needed. I see. Now, are scientists in agreement whether people need to take the same brand that they took originally? In other words, if you got a Pfizer shot series originally, is that the one that you need to get for a booster, or should you mix it up? Uh. Scientists in agreement. I, that, that, I don't know. I don't know if I can, if I can tell you that everyone's in agreement. I can certainly give you my opinion, which, which is, I think it is preferable that you uh, get the same vaccine from the same manufacturer as your original uh, two dose series, um, uh, or if you know if they authorize a second dose of Johnson and Johnson, that you you try to do that, primarily because that's the data that's going to be available and uh, valuable uh, in terms of safety and the immune response, et cetera. So we want to try to do things that support that are supported by data. And most commonly what you're going to see is the same vaccine generating uh, uh, data. So I would start there. Uh, if that was not um, for some reason available to you, then I would try to stay in the same class, meaning I would try to have messenger RNA and messenger uh, RNA. Um, if you if you have to, if you're not able to get the same uh, manufacturer, um, and then you know to go further beyond that, if uh, uh, you know if you've got uh, one of the adenovirus vectored vaccines, whether it was AstraZeneca or um, or Johnson and Johnson, uh, then you're really kind of uh, going into the land of very little data. Uh, at which point, I would you know I I might consider. Uh, you know, just getting a complete immunization series with whatever vaccine is now, uh, you know, available uh, available to you until there's some data that uh, more than just one study with small numbers that that kind of show you can mix and match you can mix and match these vaccines. How soon after your previous um, vaccinations is it recommended to get a booster? Like, how do you have to wait a certain amount of time? Because with the Delta variant surging in our community, you know, a lot of people are kind of nervous about that. Should they go out and get a booster shot now? Uh, not yet, because, uh, well, one, I think the, you know, the White House indicated that they're going to be, um, you know, and the manufacturers have indicated that, that there's going to be some guidance coming out very soon about, um, you know, when booster doses would be uh, uh, would be appropriate for non-immunocompromised 
uh, people. Uh, so I think that's number one. I think I think number two again, that you know the the data uh, in large part demonstrates that these vaccines, even you know six months out, are doing what they are supposed to be. Uh, they're doing what they're supposed to be doing, and um, so I would not, uh, you know, so that's number two. And and number three, and this is a little bit, I guess, of editorializing a little bit, uh, you know, half the country still isn't vaccinated. Only 30 to 40% of 12 to 18-year-olds are vaccinated, and kids under 12 are, are not vaccinated. Um, and so I personally, you know, I, I, I think that it, uh, focus uh, and effort and intention, uh, you know, I don't think it's uh, needed to dilute. We should not be diluting that on talking about booster doses um, for otherwise healthy people that have had robust immune responses when we have uh, half the country and a lot of the planet uh, have not having had their first vaccination <laughs> series yet. So, um, you know, yeah, I, I wanted to ask you about that. It, it sounds like things are kind of lining up to where vaccinated adults are going to be getting a third shot before kids under 12 even get a first one. Is that what's happening? Uh, it's possible. I mean, certainly they've opened it up for immunocompromised uh, people, which I think, you know, again, my personal opinion is that's very appropriate based on all the data that's out there. They clearly don't have they're at the highest risk of a bad outcome if they do get infected, and they clearly don't have the same immune response to vaccination that the rest of us uh, do. So I think that that makes a ton of sense, right? They're a population that we want to uh, that we want to protect. Um, you know, I my my personal my personal opinion, and this is not based on any you know, uh, uh, any you know any specific information that I have, but my opinion is that I think a lot uh, a, there's going to be a lot going on in this last quarter of the year in terms of uh, vaccinations becoming available to certain um, uh, groups of children, uh, uh, clarity on uh, recommendations for booster doses. Um, yeah, so I think there's a lot that's going to uh, a lot that's going to happen. So we don't really have a firm timeline on the vaccine development for children under 12, but it looks like maybe before the end of the year, we'll know more. I would, I would expect, uh, you know, that the FDA has had the data. Um, they work 24 seven down there. They're really doing an incredible job in my, in my opinion. It's very complicated. It, it, uh, uh, you know, these are, these are. These are people who are going to be getting vaccines, not because they specifically raised their hand to say vaccinate me, although uh, some kids, including my own, have done that. Um, so, you know, it's it's other people, um, you know, asking the kids to be vaccinated. And so I, I think that, uh, you know, the, the FDA wants to make sure that the, the safety data is there uh, to feel comfortable with authorizing this for use in five to 12 year olds. Well, let me ask you, aside from the moral issues, does it make scientific sense for wealthy nations to start offering booster shots before the poor nations have been able to vaccinate their populations? Well, that's, that is a, uh, you know, that is a political, um, you know, international geopolitical uh, conversation, right. which just does not apply. Um, to COVID vaccinations, it applies to lots of uh, uh, other, uh, you know, essential resources uh, and services and everything else. And so, uh, I don't, you know, I don't think just we could, we don't just have to single out um, COVID vaccinations for for that for that concept. And I would also say that even within our own country, I do believe that there is a segment of the country that has not been vaccinated, not because they don't want to be, um, but because this universal access to vaccines is not as universal in the United States as we think it is. And that I believe that, um, you know, folks in rural environments, folks in low socioeconomic status, uh, disadvantaged populations, I, I still don't think that they have the opportunities that um, uh, a lot of other segments of the population do. And I, so I bring that up saying this is not just a wealthy nation, poor nation issue. This is a uh, disparity within our own uh, wealthy nation uh, issues. So we can we we can put our lens on that question 
right here at home in the United States. But I guess what I'm getting at is if we, uh, whichever population doesn't have access to the vaccine, if they're not vaccinated and they become infected, they're, they're a threat to everyone or anyone. Absolutely. And we're such a mobile society, right? Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the world is a, the world is a small place. Uh, and until we're all protected, uh, none of us are truly protected. That is absolutely correct. Okay, as you and I are speaking in, in mid-August, I know that guidelines are still going to be coming out for who gets a booster shot when, um, you know, who who is a higher priority and that sort of thing. But it sounds like we might be looking at um, almost like flu shots we get every year. We may have to get more than one of these boosters. This might become a regular thing. Is that is that what might happen? Uh, it It might happen, but I'm not. I'm not sure if it's going to happen again. This is why these studies are 2 years in duration and there's a lot of folks who are going to be. Uh, kind of tracking all of this. I mean, hopefully. What will happen is that, uh, you know, we'll get kids vaccinated. Uh, uh, you know, the other half of the of the US population, um, a significant percentage of them will get vaccinated. Um, and uh, Delta will start to, you know, Delta will start to go away and we'll have a little bit of space to. To breathe, reassess, you know, look at, uh, take an inventory of, of, of where we are, and then, uh, uh, you know, we'll see in another uh, six to twelve months what, uh, what, what things, uh, what things look like. All right. Can you tell us when this is going to be over? I cannot. Well, I can't tell you in time. I can tell you in uh, uh, activity and effort. I, I think that um, when when we have a significant percent of the population that agrees to be uh, vaccinated, then I th and vaccine is made available uh, uh, to everyone, then that's when I th I think that's the only pathway to this being uh, to this being over. There are just too many people who are susceptible to infection um, that waiting for this, as some people have uh, proposed, waiting for this thing to uh, to burn out is just not a viable. It's just not a viable option. So um, the quickest, the quickest way out of this is through um, vaccine uptake at uh, you know very very high levels, which is why we don't have measles and mumps and rubella and tetanus and all these smallpox and polio and all these other diseases. It's the same. It's the same game plan. Well, I really appreciate you taking time to talk with us about this. Thank you, Dr. Stephen Thomas. He's an expert in infectious disease and vaccine development, who's the director of Upstate's Institute for Global Health and Translational Science. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and radio talk show, HealthLink on Air. Learn how wastewater surveillance is an early warning about COVID-19 outbreaks next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Throughout the pandemic, public health officials in some communities have relied on wastewater surveillance to provide an early warning about COVID-19 outbreaks. Syracuse University environmental epidemiologist Dr. David Larson is working to scale wastewater surveillance statewide in New York, and he's also led a project that surveyed sewage from dorms at Syracuse University. He's an associate professor in public health at SU's Falk College of Sport and Human Dynamic. Thank you for making time once again for HealthLink on Air, Dr. Larson. Yeah, thanks for having me back. So can you start by describing how wastewater surveillance is done? Yeah, yeah. So wastewater surveillance is where you look for um, the virus, not, not live virus, but but inactivated virus in wastewater in a treatment plant or outside of a building or in a neighborhood. And everybody that contributes down to that sampling point, they, that sample then is representative of them. And so with a single sample, you can actually test an entire community at once. So does it have to be untreated wastewater? You have to get it before it makes its way to the treatment? Yeah, so it needs to be untreated. It, we can get it at the treatment plant in what's called the influent pipes or out of the influent pipes. 
um, but the treatment process will degrade the RNA that's there, and then it's uh, less sensitive of a method that, at that point. How soon after people are infected will they shed the virus? That's a really good question, and it's one that's difficult to answer. And so we know that you know three to five days after somebody is exposed to COVID, then they're starting to get sick and expose other people. And so we expect that shedding to be about the same two two days, maybe three to five days as well. And how much of the virus has to be present in order for it to be picked up through surveillance? Do you need to have a lot of the virus in the water? Well, from a from an epidemiology perspective, we've found that we can reliably detect about one in one case per ten thousand population. So for every ten thousand people that contribute to that wastewater treatment plant, you can actually find virus if there's at least one case among those ten thousand. Wow. Of course, you can't pinpoint it back to that person or that house, but you know within that sample, someone is infected, right? Yeah, and so we don't we, we don't know who it is, but somebody is there. But then this also gives us confidence when we don't find it that there may not be a COVID-19 in that community. And so if we have a situation where we're not finding it in the wastewater and we're not finding it in the clinical in the clinical cases, then these communities could be COVID-free and that changes a lot of people's uh definitely changes stress levels and likely behaviors as well. How is it though that because COVID is a respiratory disease, how is it that that can be tracked through stool samples? Well, up until now, we only thought about wastewater surveillance for fecal oral transmitted diseases or waterborne diseases. So we only thought about it for stuff like cholera or polio. Um, and so now this is the first time where it's been widely used to for a non fecal oral transmitted disease for this respiratory transmitted disease. And so the the virus, even though it's respiratory transmitted, it's really kind of like a vascular disease, affects the, the vascular system more than anything. And it gets into the gut and then it'll get excreted in urine and in feces. It could also come out through uh, through the nose, washing the face and different things as well. So can you get so specific as to tell a particular variance of a virus? We, yeah, you can. So there's the a process of genomic sequencing from wastewater, and there's the the CDC's National Wastewater Surveillance uh, Network is starting to do that across uh, numerous communities in the country, and so you can definitely find a variety of different uh, genetic variants in wastewater. Can you give us a little more about the history of wastewater surveillance for public health? Um, when did it start? It's, that's a good question. When you think about looking in the wastewater for diseases, you really go back to the the birth of modern epidemiology. And there is a big cholera outbreak in the middle 1800s in London. And a guy named John Snow was investigating all the cholera deaths and was able to track it back to track it back to uh, the Broad Street pump. And so they excavated the pump and they found that there was a, a cesspool that was leaking and contaminating that pump. And so this is the type of source tracking to try to figure out well, what's in, what's affecting our, our water and it came from the wastewater there. From there, folks started looking at uh, trying to find typhoid in wastewater, trying to find cholera. This was just at the beginning, the, about the turn of the century in the 1900s was the beginning of germ theory. So finding these different viruses and, and bacteria, mostly bacteria actually in, in wastewater. And then it's wastewater surveillance really picked up a lot of momentum with polio and it's become one of the key tools for polio elimination. Um, polio is kind of similar to COVID-19 with children. It only affects one in 200 kids will actually get paralysis from polio. The rest of the kids, they'll just have a mild case of maybe a cold or, or flu-like symptoms. And so in, in Israel, they were actually able to use wastewater surveillance to identify, hey, we have polio here. They rushed in vaccinations, vaccinated the community. They didn't get any paralysis cases. And so they were able to prevent child paralysis that way. And so then now the wastewater surveillance for polio is, is used to um, it's used to, to ascertain the absence of transmission, to confirm that there's no polio transmission. And so it's still used today. Uh, 
And then more recently, folks started using wastewater surveillance to, to try to figure out how much drug use, illicit drug use was going on in communities, things like opioids and other, other things. And then with this pandemic, um, with coronavirus, trying to understand the transmission trends of coronavirus from wastewater. Wow, that's interesting. Tell tell me about the uh, statewide wastewater surveillance network and what that is meant to do. So we're working with the the New York State Department of Health and the New York State um, the DEC, the Division of Environmental Conservation, to try to build a statewide wastewater surveillance network. Um, this will then provide us going forward with the ability to to understand transmission trends in COVID nineteen independent of people getting tested for COVID-19. And we can imagine, you know, as people, as the, the testing rates are actually dropping off, as people are vaccinated and transmission gets lower, people stop getting tested. And there's always a question from a public health perspective as well, is there, is there no transmission or is it just under the, under the radar? And so this would allow us to get unbiased estimates of transmission. It would allow us to give a, a probability or a confidence there's no transmission in certain communities and it's another way of of uh and it gives us an early warning of increasing transmission thank you for listening to upstate's health link on air this is your host amber smith talking with environmental epidemiologist dr david larson from syracuse university's falk college of sport and human dynamic I'd like to talk about the benefits of wastewater testing for public health. Does it cost less than testing people? And is it yeah. a faster result? So wastewater surveillance, a wastewater test is a single test. And the equivalent would be testing about 400 people in a community. And so with a single test, you could, you could do like a random survey of 400 people to try to get an estimate of the prevalence of COVID-19. Or you can do it just a single wastewater test and the costs are, you know, the analytic test is similar to, to a saliva test. There's a little bit more processing because it's wastewater, but it's a similar cost. And so, instead of testing thousands of people across the state, we could just test the few hundred wastewater treatment centers and you get an immediate picture of, of what, what the virus is doing across the state. Now, earlier in the pandemic, when you were um, testing specific dorms, for instance, on campus, um, would you see that that could be expanded to different neighborhoods or, or does it need to be like a congregate setting? So, the, so there's, there's, a, there's a happy medium in there. There's a transition point, I guess. At some point, it doesn't make sense to do a community-based estimate. You know, it just makes more sense to test everybody in that community. And that's a decision based on transmission intensity, based on the size of community. But with this community estimate, yeah, we can we can get a neighborhood, we can get a nursing home, we can get a dormitory, um, we can get a prison, all these different places where we know that they're at high risk of transmission and sometimes high risk of disease, and then get an early indication that something's wrong if it goes wrong, and then a positive affirmation that something that everything's okay. And so it's 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 a huge benefit to public health. Yeah. Can wastewater surveillance be helpful after a virus is already established in a community? If we know that you know there's COVID here, is there anything that you know we can learn from doing wastewater surveillance still? Yeah, in my opinion, it is. It's another. It's an unbiased estimate of transmission, and so we're always worried about well, is transmission going up, or is it going down? Even if it's high. We have super high transmission. We want to know: Are we at the peak of our transmission, or is it still going up? And wastewater surveillance will give us that a few days before the clinical testing, and it'll give us that in an unbiased way. You know, we could have with this vaccine, we could have silent epidemic of coronavirus, right? We could have a silent transmission going on. People aren't getting sick; they're not getting tested. They actually don't get into the measures of cases, and so we don't know how intense the transmission is. Uh, because our testing behavior has changed. Now, wastewater, there's no human behavior at all. It's just people, people use the bathroom, you know, and that's that's not going to change. And so then we have this unbiased estimate of what transmission's doing, and then we can make appropriate public health decisions as a result of that. 
What's it been like for you teaching about a global pandemic during a global pandemic? It's been interesting, right? It's been interesting. I've, I've worried about overburdening my students. I learned early that they wanted to know, you know, this is 2020 spring semester, right after the coronavirus um, jumped over from animals. Uh, so trying to trying to teach them at that point, they just want to know more about the coronavirus. So a lot of sit downs and question answer sessions and things. And then as the pandemics progress, it's been okay. It's, you know, a lot of examples to teach in epidemiology and public health practice. So. Well, the last time you and I spoke, um, because you also have expertise in global health, I asked you which nations you thought were doing a good job managing the pandemic. And you, at that time, you praised New Zealand and Vietnam, each because they had swift and coordinated federal responses and, and good contact tracing. So now we're more than 18 months into this. Do you still think those countries are at the top of the list? Yeah, so New Zealand, they're still COVID-free. All right, and there's a big question, will they be able to keep the Delta variant out? This Delta variant appears more infectious and it's harder to control. And they've gone with their elimination strategy and and they're pushing to vaccinate now. So, but they're still COVID free. You know, Vietnam, they've got a surge going on right now um, with this Delta variant. I think we're now a year and a half into the pandemic and um, there's a lot of fatigue all across the board. And so it's understandable. And then the Delta variant's a huge game changer, you know, the, the increased transmission of that. So they're still, you know, they're still commendable, definitely, those two countries. A few other countries have been excellent in vaccine rollout. Uh, Chile, they've, the, the country of Chile went crazy with vaccine rollout, just vaccinated everybody. And then Canada has been doing fantastic with their vaccine rollout. And so, um, so it'll be, you know, hopefully we get more vaccines everywhere. So, Well, considering the vaccine, what do you think that leaders need to consider when they're deciding whether to offer vaccine boosters to the general public versus, you know, making sure all nations have access to vaccines first? Well, I think this Delta variant has shown us just how interdependent our own public health and health security is on the rest of the globe. So this Delta variant, it arose out of India, had we been able to vaccinate India, you know, I think that, well, it first appeared in December of 2020. And so there's no real way to, to vaccinate before that. But if we fail to vaccinate a country like India, if we fail to vaccinate any country in the world, that will then pro provide an opportunity for the virus to transmit more intensely and to mutate. And the virus doesn't mutate from vaccinated people. It mutates from unvaccinated people. And so the, the more back, vaccine we get out globally. Um, if there's any pockets of unvaccinated people, that's a risk to us. Well, this has been very informative. Thank you, Dr. David Larson. He's an environmental epidemiologist and associate professor in public health at Syracuse University's Falk College of Sport and Human Dynamic. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and radio talk show, HealthLink on Air. Here's some expert advice from Dr. Stephen Ferrone from Upstate Medical University. What should a parent do if they think their child has attention deficit hyperactivity disorder? The first thing the parent should do would be to discuss their concerns with their pediatrician. Pediatricians are usually very knowledgeable about ADHD because they uh, treat, most of them treat children with ADHD in their practice. If the pediatrician tells you that your child doesn't have ADHD, then you have two options. One is to agree and wait and see what happens in the future, to monitor, but I would monitor the situation if you have concerns. The second is to evaluate what the pediatrician told you, because there are some pediatricians who have a negative attitude towards ADHD. And if they seem to have a negative attitude about the disorder, you might consider going, going elsewhere. And where would elsewhere be? Well, the next step would be to go see a Ideally, a child, not a lesson psychiatrist, because these are clearly the world experts in ADHD. Well, it can be hard to get an appointment, and therefore you might want to 
to consider seeing either a, a clinical psychologist who specializes in children um, or even another pediatrician. But I have to emphasize, if you're concerned about your child because they're not doing well in school, because they're not socializing with, 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 with other kids, they're showing real impairments, I would not take no for an answer unless you get a very good answer. Because if, if your child, you don't want your child falling behind. One of the things that always worries me, well, I should say, I'll tell you why I'm worried about this, because years ago we did a study looking at the time between the first diagnosis of ADHD, actually the first diagnosis of any child with psychiatric disorder and the first onset of symptoms. The average, the average distance was about four to six years, which is a huge gap in a child's life. Can you imagine on average four to six years not being treated for a disorder? What happens then is that things only get worse because the disorder, having the disorder um, complicates the child's life very much. So I'm, a, I'm always in favor of being very clear on why somebody thinks you don't have, your, your child doesn't qualify for the diagnosis when you seem to have clear evidence that there is a disorder there. You can also talk to the teacher, get information from the teacher about the child's behavior. Teachers have uh, a good perspective. It is possible that you, you know, some parents are just really nervous about how their kid's doing. I, I wouldn't, for example, say my kid has ADHD just because they're doing poorly in school. Um, ADHD is a specific set of symptoms. Kids do poorly in school for lots of reasons. Um, kids with ADHD also do poorly in many situations. If your child only has ADHD symptoms in one place, like at home or in school, that's not ADHD. That has something to do with the situation that needs to be resolved. And so that's something, you know, a pediatrician might be telling you when they say your child doesn't have the disorder. And then once you get diagnosed, once you or the child gets diagnosed with the disorder, then depending upon who you see, you'll get offered a certain kind of treatment. Some most pediatricians will offer medication treatment because that is that follows the American Academy of Pediatrics guidelines, except for preschoolers. And in preschoolers, the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends that uh, one start with a course of family behavior therapy first. And if that doesn't resolve the problem within a few months or so, then to move on to medication. But if your child qualifies for medication based on those guidelines and your pediatrician says no. Again, you want a good answer why they're not providing the medication because we know that the medications work. Now, another issue that parents face is that they're really nervous about the medications. And you know, frankly, I would be too. I have, you know, I raised three boys who are now in their 30s, but I was always concerned when they had to take a medication for any problem that they had in life. So these concerns are very reasonable. But remember, you're weighing your concerns about the medication with the concerns about what will happen to your child if their disorder is not treated. And I've just seen too many cases of children who did not get treated for many, many years because their parents were worried about the effects of treatment and they ended up having a very bad course in life that led to underachievement and all the negative outcomes we know that can be caused by ADHD. So keep in mind that the medications for ADHD, particularly the stimulant medications, stimulant medications, they've been used for for decades. I mean, they've been, they were approved by the FDA. The first one was approved by the FDA in the 1960s. Uh, they were actually discovered in the late 1930s. Amphetamine was discovered to help with ADHD back in 1937 or 39. So these have been used for years. They even use stimulant medications, even used to treat the elderly um, in cases particularly where people fall asleep easily and so forth like that. And they've been shown to be very safe in the elderly. So they've passed many, many, many safety tests for many decades. So I, I would urge parents not to be overly concerned about, about that. The only, the main concern about the use of the stimulant medications is that they're not to be used in um, anyone who has a pre-existing cardiac condition because that can exacerbate those problems. You've been listening to Dr. Stephen Ferrone from Upstate Medical University. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's Literary and Visual Arts Journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Physicians often feel they inhabit two worlds simultaneously. They live with their patients and they live with their families. A single day may contain a world of joy and a world of sorrow, and they must navigate these very different spaces. Thomas Malpalam is a neurosurgeon in Northern California his poetry has also appeared in JAMA. His poem, Pride and Shame, illustrates the highs and lows of his work. 
A good case is a new baby displayed with pride. In the waiting room, the surgeon stands tall in stride. Surgery went perfectly, just as planned. Home tomorrow, the family shakes his hand. Ready for the next task, he declares God's will. Those years of toil were not such a bitter pill. Does he deserve a special treat? A chai latte at a cafe down the street. A bad case is a deformed and shameful beast. He will flee to a foreign city in solitary retreat. Time crystallizes. Matter changes state like a supersaturated precipitate. Atoms freely flowing in a prior stage now are trapped in a lattice cage. He is humbled and forlorn. God in heaven do not scorn. All eyes on him, he counsels the family. Step by step, day by day is the homily. This is a known complication. He warns of a long rehabilitation. Her husband slouches in the chair. In a chamber, their voices echo despair. Their lives are changed forevermore. The surgeon slips out the sliding door. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, a suicide prevention program expands to younger teens. If you missed any of today's show or for more consumer health podcasts, visit our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on Air is produced by Jim Howe with sound engineering by Stephen Shaw. This is your host, Amber Smith, thanking you for listening. Listening.